You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Amen, amen. Thank you for that. Be seated and please find a Bible open to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 where we are together. Um, I noticed you all didn't come to 8.30 service. I'll just leave it at that, huh? No, no, it's good. I'm glad you're here. Really glad you're here. We'll see who comes to the next one as well. Um, James chapter 2. So we spent seven weeks in James chapter 1, and we're going to spend two weeks in James chapter 2. All right? So seven weeks in James chapter 1, two weeks in, Lord willing, James chapter 2. Why is that? Because um, in part for the first time in this letter, James decides to develop a single theme at length. So the first time as we come to chapter two, he takes one issue and he unpacks it in length. Chapter one was like rapid fire. James was like giving us a few jabs, went for right cross and big uppercut with conviction. That's what he did. Now chapter two, he decides to, okay, forget the flurry of punches. Let's grapple. Okay, he's gonna gonna grapple us and just wrestle us down on two main themes in chapter two and he's going to do it at length as well. The first issue that he tackles now is the issue of partiality. Very interesting. Again, hey, one of the great blessings of preaching expositorily through scripture, right? Starting chapter one, verse one, all the way through. You just hit issues you would not hit otherwise. And that's what we're doing through the book of James. You just like, it wouldn't be a, a passage. Maybe you'd pick by itself. You had one chance to preach, but we're here now and that's exciting. And so we're just going through again, uh, God's word again, verse by verse. And that becomes a great blessing for us. So this issue of partiality, the length that James gives to it. And mind you, when I say James gives to it, the Holy Spirit, right? Writing through James. Evidently, this means this was a real issue among his audience. Uh, Once again, James's theology is so practical. Uh, It's so down to earth. We love that. His heart for the church here is so evident as well. Um, He's just, he just sees such a passion for the church to love, like to put their faith into action, to put feet to their faith. Again, the theme of our series. And what he does now, he takes extended real estate, and here's our title of the sermon, is to tell us why is partiality a problem? Why is partiality such a problem? So James chapter 2, let's check out the first seven verses to begin, and then Lord willing, we'll get to verse 13 um, as well. So uh, James 2 verse 1 says this, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Notice the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down on my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges, notice, with evil thoughts? Verse five is key for this whole text. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you, in contrast, have dishonored the poor man, the person that God has chosen. You've dishonored the poor man and are not the rich ones who oppress you not the rich ones, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's stop there and let's begin to unpack and exegete our text, okay? The first point is abundantly clear. When it comes to the church, number one, partiality is problematic. And that's kind of putting it lightly in some ways. Partiality is problematic. So in verse one, the word partiality literally means, interesting, receiving the face, 
Receiving the face, meaning um, partiality is when we hold appearances as most important. The externals get all the attention. We are uh, evaluating people based on superficial um, kind of parts of who they are. Uh, we're not concerned about what's internal, but rather, again, the externals are taking up our attention and are deciding the worth of the individual that is in front of us. So in the case of partiality or favoritism, this was being given in the context we're in right now. This was being given to those who had social status, to those who were important, to those who had strong appearances, to those who were wealthy. It's good to know in the first century, um, it was a very partial age. There were significant divisions in society. Hatred was often seen between classes or ethnicities or nationalities and religion. I mean, in Scripture, we see this in many cases as well, like in the Gospels and stuff, the, the tension or hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Now, often the divisions, the distinctions, and, and tension or hatred between Romans and basically everyone else, right? In the case of our passage here, there was prejudice Specifically, though, among the socioeconomic classes. And James is passionately, like very passionately against this. I also want you to see in verse 1, James says, notice, show no partiality. Now look at the reason he gives, again, initially. Verse 1, take a look. Show no partiality to those who hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, the Lord of glory. Why is that there? Why is that important? Here's why, Okay. When your vision is of Christ and his glory, when you see Christ in his worth and glory and his splendor, it's very, very difficult at that point to deem yourself better than someone else, okay? The vision of the glory of Christ, all you see is his worth, and compared to Christ, we become absolutely nothing. So it's like Isaiah and Isaiah 6, and his vision of the temple, of the glory of the Lord, and he is just, woe is me. He is like disintegrated in the glory and the beauty of God, and all he sees is how unworthy he is. He's spending no time comparing himself to others around him. There's not, 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 not an ounce or a smidge of like, look how great I am. It's just in the glory of the Lord, he comes to nothing. Uh, Luke 5, Peter in the boat, they catch a fish. Whatever happens there, Peter sees Christ in his glory. Peter crumbles to his knees and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He has no time, no ability to look around and compare himself to other disciples or apostles. None of that whatsoever. He sees the glory of Christ and he is shredded in the midst of that and he is so humbled in his own sinfulness and all he can think about, you are holy, I am not, and there's zero comparisons horizontally. That's what's happening right here. This is, what, this is what James is saying. Listen, if you've been saved by the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel, and you know how awesome he is, why are you spending time showing partiality to people around you when you yourself are nothing in light of, again, Christ and his perfection? So the more we see a vision of Christ, the less we'll be partial and discriminatory within our own lives. And verses two to four explain, though, that distinctions were being made as they gathered to assemble together. What happened? Walls were being built up between them, again, among socioeconomic classes. But here's the awesome thing, right? Jesus Christ came, what? To break down the walls of hostility, Ephesians chapter two. Jesus Christ came with the gospel available to all. 
And in the context of Galatians chapter 3 on the screen for you, because the gospel is not just for Jew, but also for Gentile, in that sense now, because Christ came, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. It doesn't eliminate their distinctions. It means the gospel is available, available to all. We all become one. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Again, in light of the reality, all can receive the gospel. There will always be, though, distinctions through the age. There's always going to be male and female as God created them. But both male and female have the ability to receive the gospel and become one together in Christ Jesus. So therefore, in that sense, there should be no favoritism or partiality between any of these examples. And that's the beauty of the unity and the humility that should be within the genuine Christian church, okay? But this gospel, man, it was earth shattering in the first century because walls of division were crumbling down in the light of the love and the grace and the truth that was found in Jesus Christ. More on that in a moment, but we need to know this, okay? The unity and humility did not come easily when the church was started. And that's what our text is saying. Christ came, but here was this struggle. The rich were being favored and the poor were being dishonored. Notice in verse 4-2 that partiality is clearly denoted here as evil. Their discrimination was viewed as wicked by James, by God, by the Holy Spirit. Why is this so? Why is partiality wicked? Why is discrimination so evil? Think about it. It's because when we are partial or we discriminate, in that moment, it's people are deciding the value of other people. That's why. We have no right. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no one that's better than another on those terms. But partiality is deciding that someone is worth less than another person. Only God the judge in the end gets to decide, again, has the authority to judge such things. But partiality means you are declaring one's worth to be less than your own. And that's a very, very serious indictment for those who seek to do such things. Furthermore, in partiality, here's what often happens and here's what's going on here as well in the text. In partiality, we often will give preference to those who we think we can benefit from the most. So we treat others with kindness or treat others, whatever, with favoritism because really we're hoping to get back from them something that they can give us. So that leads to sins of self-glory, selfishness, self-preservation, self-promotion. This was the sin of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So consumed with self and they exalted one another in the hopes of benefiting each other. That's why partiality, again, is sinful, is evil, and is such a problem within the church. It has no place within the genuine Christian church. Those are really good reasons why partiality is such a problem. But really, the greatest reason why partiality is such a problem in this context is because those who are partial, listen, against the poor in this case, they totally miss the heart of God. Those who are partial towards, again, the rich, and again, in a negative way towards the poor, they totally miss the heart of God. And that's a major, major problem. So look at verse 5 again. Look at verse 5, key verse. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So the major point that James is making here, okay, 
Partiality proves that you don't understand the heart of God. Being partial to the rich means we don't understand the very heart of God. So we might be speaking some words of God, like we might know some Christianese, we might know some, fra- some, some, some phrases, we might say some things that God has said, but if we are partial to the rich, then we have proven that we don't really know or have the heart of God because God is never this way. God is not partial. And listen, when we are partial to the wealthy or to the rich, that also proves that we put too much stock in wealth and riches. I'll say it again, okay? When we are partial to those who are wealthy and rich, we have placed too much emphasis, too much worth on the value of earthly wealth and riches. That proves something about our hearts. So examine your heart right now. Is that a problem? Examine your hearts. If we are partial in this way, it proves that something is wrong within. Here's a great quote here by Bruce Surdy. He says this, the wealth of an individual is no measure of the worth of an individual. Our world doesn't do that very well at all. But that's really good. The wealth of an individual has no, no, nothing to do with the true worth of an individual. Otherwise, Jesus Christ himself would be nothing because Jesus Christ had nothing. Yet he was the greatest treasure of a person who ever lived. This is the heart and the power of the gospel and the heart of God. Consider how much our culture, though, and our society fawns over the rich and famous. Right? Just like to tumble over ourselves to, to exalt and to honor. You know, like those award shows, those like Hollywood award shows, they make me want to puke. Okay? Like just these, these celebrities are just crawling all over themselves to exalt and how great and da 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 da. It's the opposite of God's heart. Like the rich and the famous are held up and there they are, so important. And God is the opposite of God's heart. God is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, God says the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Oh God, you will not despise. God upholds the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The heart of God is so often for those who are poor in this world because it's not always, not 100%, but so often it's the poor in this world that understand they need the Lord. One commentator said this, the rich man may trust God, but the poor man must trust God. As we've explained many times, as the Bible explains many times, it's not that the rich can't be saved. It's just, it's way harder, the Bible says, for the rich to be saved. Why? Because the rich have this obstacle of this false sense of security that they have everything put together. They don't have needs. Therefore, they become their own God. And let me just say, as we've said many times in the past in this church, we all being part of where we live, this is a danger for every single one of us in one way or another. We have so much. So we must be very careful and guard our hearts with all vigilance. Because if we're not careful, then we will start to think that we're much more secure than we actually are. And we might start to show partiality to those people that we sinfully desire to be like. Consider too that um, partiality is the opposite of James 1 verse 27. Remember that from last week? Look at James 1 verse 27. Here's pure religion that you visit widows and orphans right? That you have a a heart of compassion for those who are helpless. When you give partiality to the rich, you've just done the opposite of what God commanded in verse 27 in James 1. It goes against the very heart of God, so partiality is problematic. Now, verses 6 and 7, they're interesting. 
Notice in verse six, he's like, but you have dishonored, or that could mean humiliated the poor man. So contrast with verse five in the heart of God, the very people that God wants to favor and honor, you've actually dishonored the ones that God has a heart for. Well, that's not good. That's what he says there again in verse six. Isn't it interesting too? Jesus Christ himself, in my readings this week, 2 Corinthians 8, for our sake, Jesus Christ became poor, now that means mostly, again, spiritually, obviously, but he also was physically poor. Foxes and you know, birds of a nest to lay their heads. The, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus Christ came and gave up everything that we might have everything. Jesus Christ was rejected by so many people. The elites of society, for the most part, rejected Christ because he didn't look like them. Jesus Christ was absolutely rejected. They esteemed him not, Isaiah 53. Among the religious leaders of the day, they could not stand him in part because they did not, he did not look like him. He did not have what they had. He did not speak the way they spoke. He was rejected in the midst of, you could say, his, his poverty. Fascinating. How many people staring at the very son of God because he wasn't playing the cultural part. He was cast to the side and ultimately murdered. We need to be very, 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 very careful that we're not rejecting the very ones that God has a special heart for. In the second half of verse 6 and verse 7 too, he's like, listen, you're catering to those who in the end will just treat you like trash. Why would you cater to the ones in the end that are against you in the first place? In the first century, okay, in the first century, it was often the wealthy who would use the courts to steal from the poor. The wealthy would use their leverage, they would use their status, they would use their importance, they would use their connections, they would use their corruption and they would often find ways to steal from the poor. They might accumulate greater riches for themselves. James makes it clear it was the rich who would often blaspheme the name of Christ, which proves they weren't sincere believers to begin in the first place. So he's like, listen, why would you be partial to those who in the end will persecute you, in the end would blaspheme the name of your Savior, Jesus Christ? That's a very, very important question for us to consider and answer. That wouldn't make much sense at all. I just want to pause here for a second and just provide some summary application from the first couple of verses because I want us to be clear. Here's what James is saying in many, many ways. Number one, partiality is a problem because it's sinful. Partiality is a great problem within our lives. Number two, God has a special heart for the poor. If we are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, we also must have a heart of compassion for those who are helpless, for those who are poor, that we might come alongside them and love them. Number three, notice this. This is important. James is not saying it's a sin to be wealthy. James is saying it's a sin to give, be partial towards the wealthy. That's what James is saying. And it's also making sure that it's not a sin to be wealthy, but to put our hope in it is. To put our trust in riches is. To live for earthly riches alone is a sin. And then lastly, this, do not favor those who hate you. Right? What do we mean by that? Well, again, I think our application in our lives or our culture would be, be be really careful who you follow. Now let's let's make sure we understand, right? They, and in this case, he's like, why are you why are you being partial to those who will drag you to court, steal from you at the end, blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ? Some of us right here, the person the people or people, the persons we follow the most, social media, entertainment, those we look to, the wisdom we're seeking to gain and gather, are people that if you really knew how they feel, they would actually hate the name of Jesus Christ, hate the word of God, hate the truth, and want nothing to do with Christianity. Why would you honor or favor or follow people who in the end hate your Savior? Don't do that. I think that's really, really dumb. 
Why would you want to model your life after people who absolutely disdain the very savior that has saved your life and given you everlasting life? That's what I think in part James is saying right now. Why would you be partial to such people? We love them. We pray for their salvation. We want to be humble again around them. We want to extend again in humility again. Again, it's not saying we don't love them and pray for our enemies, but do not, do not follow them or be partial to them or honor them in the sense that you're looking to them. That doesn't make any sense. Rather be partial to those who have the heart of Christ and those, again, who need our love in specific and practical ways. So partiality is problematic. Now, point number two is this. Partiality betrays the law of love. Partiality betrays the law of love. Look at, look at verse eight now. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Okay? So James says the royal law. What's the royal law? It's beautiful. The royal law is that which is given by a king. The Lord gave the law of the Ten Commandments which is summarized by King Jesus in two essential commands. Matthew 22, verse 37, on the screen for you, right? A legal expert asked Jesus the question, which is the greatest commandment? This is what Jesus said. You shall love the Lord your God, heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what he says here. Jesus says categorically, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Therefore, these, this is the royal law which genuine believers in Christ are most called to and becomes our highest aim and our greatest purpose. So the single greatest fruit that should come through genuine Christ followers is the royal law. And the royal law is love. The single greatest fruit that should come from our lives as genuine Christian followers, love God, love others, in one word, love. Now, listen, love not defined by culture, love not defined by society, love not defined by media, love defined by God's word, love defined by Jesus Christ, love defined by the truth we hold in our hand right now. But the single greatest fruit that we should have from our lives is the royal law of love. And let's be also clear here then, no believer this side of heaven will fulfill this law perfectly. No one can do that this side of heaven. However, it is to be our pursuit and our priority that above all things, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The great commandment is love God and love your neighbor. Again, our highest aim and call. What I love about the love of Christ in the love of the gospel is the Christian church through love has been the single greatest force all throughout history, the last 2,000 years, irrefutable, 
based on any true study of history because that's what Jesus Christ does through his church. Has the church made mistakes? Tons and tons of times. You don't evaluate the church so just on mistakes. You evaluate the church again on the majority of what has happened throughout history, which is irrefutable and undeniable. Um, I received the book a couple months ago. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. Um, it's my favorite book of the year. Um, I didn't know anything about it. I started reading it. I was blown away. I was so excited. It's called The Book That Made Your World. It's by an Indian Christian scholar, apologist, Vishal Mengawadi. And um, the subtitle, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. And it goes through, I highly, highly recommend it. And it goes through history. And he's so well-researched and just proving how the truth of God's word and the gospel of Christianity is the greatest driving force of true change and love. And he comes from an Eastern background in India, so he's so able to contrast and with personal testimony and with incredible evidence to see how the love of Christ has made such an impact in so many different ways. One chapter of this book, there's so many, one chapter is about compassion, about the Bible, the Christian faith, the gospel, and compassion. And a couple of quotes I took from that. I hope to quote from this for, honestly, years to come. It's such going to be a valuable resource. But he starts to highlight Justin Martyr, who lived in the second century. And Justin Martyr, when he came to Christ, the impact in that, again, kind of early days of the church. Here's what he said about the impact of the love of Christ. He says, we follow the only unbegotten God through his son. We who, listen, who formerly delighted in fornication, but now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts, now we dedicate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who used to value above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions, now we bring in what we have into a common stock and communicate to everyone in need. We who used to hate and destroy one another on account of their different manners would not live with men from a different tribe. Now, since the coming of Christ, we live closely with them. We pray for our enemies and endeavor to persuade those who hate us unjustly to live conformably to the good precepts of Christ. To the end that they may become partakers with us of the same joyful hope of a reward from God, the ruler of all. Wow, the power of the gospel that began to live through Christ that literally began to change the world. Now, obviously, the Christian church has not lived up to these ideals through all of time, but man, there's been so much power and testimony. Here's what Vishal says going on. He says this. He says, the Christian church, or he says this, Emperor Julian, who lived in 331, 363, inadvertently confirmed the essential validity of Justin's claims he says, when he tried to save Rome's pagan religions from, by persecuting Christians, listen to this, he told his co-religionists that if they really wanted to prevent Christianity's growth, they would have to serve their neighbors better than Christians did. I love that. I love that so much. That's the power of the gospel. That's what it does. He goes on to say this. He says, one hears similar statements from militant Hindus today who hate Christian missions yet challenge each other to serve like Christians in order to prevent people from becoming followers of Christ. You see, the power of the royal law is second to none. The power of the gospel, the power of loving your neighbor as yourself only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe we stop here right now and say, hey, how can you better love your neighbor as yourself right now? What does this look like in your life right now? We live in an extremely selfish society. Every day we're called to look out for number one and only think of ourselves. The Christian gospel says something entirely different. Die to self. Take up your cross. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where can the royal law 
bear more fruit in your life right now? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you and me right now in this way? Because if we fail in the royal law, then really we're denying the highest call of the Christian life. If you look now at verse 9, in verse 9, notice straight up, verse 9 it says that partiality is a sin. But if you, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the sin or the law as transgressors, right? It's right there. So partiality then is a direct offense to the law of love given by Christ. Partiality is a direct offense to the law of love given by Christ. So partiality is a problem because partiality is a sin. Again, do we love our neighbor as ourselves. There's a, there's a powerful illustration of this. John Phillips, he, he said this about the royal law. He says, the spirit of this royal law runs very deep. Here you are coming home from work one day when on alighting from the bus, you notice that the sky ahead is black with smoke. Hello, you say. It looks as though there's a house on fire. Just then with sirens blaring, the fire truck roars by. You hurry your steps and turn a corner. Now you can see a crowd of people up ahead and the fire truck is unloading its men and equipment. It's on my block, you exclaim. And you break into a run. Then you notice that it's your house that's on fire. Praise the Lord, you exclaim. I'm so glad it's not my neighbor's house. So a person would react if he were truly motivated by the royal law. He says, this is a rare person indeed. Ouch. How would you respond How would I respond in a similar circumstance when the royal law truly desires to love our neighbor as herself? When you came home and your house on fire, would that be your first sentence from your mouth? Praise the Lord, it's not my neighbor's house. But that's what what love does. The love of Christ supernaturally compels us and allows us to live with a love that we can't produce on our own. That's why Jesus Christ came to live and die and be raised from the dead and fill us with his Holy Spirit. Again, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It starts with love. Love. Challenging. Compelling. Convicting. This, this is what James is going after. He's like, hey, hey, if you say, if you are who you say you are, then the royal law must be first and foremost, again, from your Life. So partiality is problematic. Partiality betrays the law of love. And thirdly, and finally this, we must be motivated to show mercy. Why? Because judgment is coming. We must be motivated to show mercy because of the coming judgment. So look at verse 10 now. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So notice this here. The seriousness of favoritism. The seriousness of partiality, right? So it seems like James's audience were trying to pick and choose the laws they wanted to follow. But James says, listen, you break one law, you break all of it. If you sin in partiality, then you're breaking the entire law itself. And you'll be held accountable in one sin to all of it. So it's, there's a tremendous sobriety to who, we, to who we are and what we're doing. Verse 11, for he said, do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Here's the point, verse 12. So therefore, so speak, and now listen to this, and so act... As those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the law of the gospel. Why? Verse 13. 
For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Fascinating. And he says, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Now what's happening here? A lot's happening here. Partiality is a sin. Stay with me here. Partiality is a sin that goes against the essential law to love. And the law of love is integral to the royal law. So therefore then, if we say we're in Christ and we have the royal law, the command living within us, therefore, how we speak and how we act will be a very large part of how we're judged when Christ returns in terms of mercy as well. How we speak and how we act in terms of love and mercy will be a very large part of how we are judged when Christ returns. Why? Because if we're truly in Christ, then we must have love. If we're truly in Christ, the point he's making here, if we're truly in Christ, we must show mercy because we have been shown mercy. See, the invitation right now is, hey, are we, and by the way, like I, James, man, he's just, he says some hard things. Like, we're just, I'm just wrestling verse 12 and 13 this week and be like, what is this saying? And what does it exactly mean? And just like, wow, like he's, again, he's not holding any punches back right here. He's like, listen, listen, if your life fails to show mercy, be afraid. Be afraid. Because the person who withholds mercy will be showing no mercy when Christ returns. Mercy is absolutely imperative for the lives of those who say they truly follow Christ. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus said in Matthew 6, for if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Jesus also says, if you don't forgive others, then you yourselves will not be forgiven. If you don't show mercy and compassion and forgiveness as a genuine child of God who has received all the forgiveness eternity can offer, then how can you yourself be saved if you are not showing the mercy that's been given to you? That's what he's saying. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, feed them, help them, show compassion to the poor and the desperate. Jesus says, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. If you don't feed, if you don't show compassion, if you don't show mercy, then Jesus says, you'll be cast aside in hell and fire. Hard words, not my words, the words of Jesus, of all people. What are we learning here? We're learning, again, he says, those who withhold mercy, they will not be shown mercy. Because it means those people then cannot be genuinely saved in Christ. And they're not doing it to earn salvation. They're doing it because of their salvation, because of the love of Christ within them. So again, let's just kind of summarize this part here too because it's pretty, pretty serious. If we have received mercy, listen, loved ones, if we have received mercy in Christ, no exceptions, we will show mercy. Doesn't mean you're perfect every day, my goodness, no. But the pattern of your life is merciful. The pattern of our lives is to show mercy. Listen, the text says, therefore we must so speak and so act in terms of mercy. Where does this apply to your life right now? 
we must speak and act in mercy because of the mercy that we've been granted. And by the way, too, like again, so the genuine believer must show love, must show mercy. There's a lot of people coming through our doors right now, especially in the last several weeks or a couple of months, okay? Let me just say this on behalf of our pastors, elders, staff team, and just with a heart of love and, and one of truth and grace. If you're coming here to sit and watch, you have to find another place to do that. We don't have time for spectators only. We do encourage to be here and to make sure you know what we believe, to make sure you understand our church. But if it's been month after month after month after month or sometimes year after year and you're not involved using your giftedness to serve the Lord Jesus Christ here at Hope and through the extension of Hope, there's a problem. There's a, you have been given. If you're saved in Christ, you have a spiritual gift. If you're saved in Jesus Christ, you have an obligation to love and show mercy as a child of God. Let me say it again. If you're going to be here and just watch, that's not going to work long term. You must be used. We have needs of serving. When we serve, we love. When we serve, we show mercy. It could be anything again from so many different places within our church and then extension ministries within our church as well. One more time, if you're here to watch and watch alone, that will not work out long term. If all of us respond in obedience to this very sobering command to show love and mercy, we will be a force to be reckoned with in the spiritual world. If everyone desires to do that in the way that God has called them to, in some ways, hidden, small, meaningful, significant, beautiful, powerful, all of us do that, look out. And again, let me say this, according to this text, you don't have a choice. If we're to be obedient, we do not have a choice. We must show mercy. We must love in many ways to prove the reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we have received mercy, we will show mercy. This is sobering though, and this is what he says here too. If we lack mercy as a pattern in our lives, we should be very fearful. If we live our lives with Consistent, rampant unforgiveness, greed, selfishness, hard-heartedness. If the fruit of our lives is anti-fruit of spirit and is about all about us, if we have a consistent pattern of being unmerciful, the Bible says you should be afraid. Because the person generally saved in Christ, cannot continue month after month and year after year to be unmerciful. They must bear fruit. The text says itself, it says, the unmerciful will not receive mercy, which indicates they're unbelievers and they have not received the gift of grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, which they cannot earn, but they must receive by believing in him. Not my words, just the words right here in, in scripture. It's a really important time to examine our lives and say, where are we at? Where are we at and what's happening? Uh, thirdly, a Christ follower, just the principles from 12 and 13, a Christ follower filled with mercy has nothing to fear in judgment. Now, when we talk about judgment, this is not a judgment for salvation. Unbelievers will face a judgment based on their lack of salvation in Christ. But believers, the New Testament teaches us, will also be held account in judgment, not for salvation, based on what we've done with what's been entrusted to us. 
all of us saved in Christ will have to stand before Christ and give an account. He's like, I gave you talents. I gave you opportunity. I gave you giftedness. What did you do with them? I gave you love. What did you do with the love I gave you? See, we, we all have to give an account in a form of judgment before Christ at the end when he returns. But those, what the text says here, those who give mercy, there's nothing to fear in judgment because we are living out that which is most dear to Christ. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, our whole context today is the sin of partiality. The context today is to not be partial to the rich and those who had advantage. The context today is to show mercy and to love those who have little and to not be partial within our lives. There's so much to think about. There's so much to consider here. It's powerful. It's important. So our response of mercy is one of the proofs of Christ's saving grace within us. So as we think about that right now, partiality is a problem because it's sinful. Partiality betrays the law of love. And we are motivated. Again, I just, I just, like, I just want you to know, like, I wrestle with this text this week too, but it's just, it's right there in front of us. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But here, praise the Lord, it ends on a good note. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy we've received, but then the mercy that we extend shows that we have received Mercy. Hmm. It's a lot for us here today, and I pray the Holy Spirit is applying it as he can. Let's pray as we end here. Let's just pray. Let's just bow our heads in quiet, and I just want to pray through some application. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us where we have been partial, where we have favored others above other people, where we have deemed status, wealth, riches as more important than those who do not have that. Forgive us our sins. Holy Spirit, specifically, what people have we been ignoring? What people have we been politely avoiding or casting aside when your heart is for the broken, your heart is for the helpless, your heart is for the the poor? Show us right now, Holy Spirit, where partiality exists. And may we repent of this sin and be filled with mercy to be used of you. Holy Spirit, show us where we have betrayed the royal law of love. Holy Spirit, where does love need to be seen today, like literally today in our lives? Who are we not forgiving Who are we resenting? Who are we not loving with the opportunity we've had in recent days, weeks, or months? Forgive us, Lord, for failing to show love, the very royal law that is to be the greatest indicator of our relationship with you. So we pray for more love. Wow, if we would have more love defined by Jesus, this church, again, would be such a force for power and good. Show us, Lord, how can we love? Who can we love? And I, I, loved ones, I encourage you today. Who can you love today? Some of you are refusing to forgive. It's a lack of love. It's a lack of mercy. Holy Spirit, how can we be showing mercy today in our lives right now? The motivation, judgment is coming. The seriousness, judgment is coming and Jesus Christ will say, hey, what'd you do with what I gave you? What'd you do? I poured out love in your life. I gave you giftedness. I gave you time. I gave you opportunity. What'd you do with it? Is it hay and stubble or is it gold, silver, and precious stones? Wow, that's sobering. 
Lord, I pray today we are motivated. We are motivated to love and to show mercy. May it be so, Lord. May it be so. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen, church. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing in response.